Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 94. On today's show, we talk about Balkan heritage and finding frescoes. Let's dig a little deeper. All right, welcome back to the Archaeology Show, everybody. And this week, we've got a couple of guests that are actually halfway across the world from me right now. I'm in Northern California. And I know Ivan, when we first got on, said he was in the uh, in the Danube, and we'll have him talk about that a little more, uh, about where they're at. But welcome to the show, Ivan and Vasil. Hello, everyone. Hi. All right. So the show is titled Balkan Heritage, and this is how I was introduced to you guys. So why don't you tell us, just, just tell us a little bit about Balkan Heritage. First, for our listeners, because geography is challenging for some people, where in the world are we talking about? Where are you guys right now? And then we'll get into a little bit of the history. Yeah, first, uh, what is Balkan Heritage? It's a Bulgarian non-governmental cultural institution uh, dealing with preservation and study of archaeological and cultural heritage in Southeastern Europe. It's an organization working at um, currently at four Balkan countries, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, uh, Montenegro and Greece. And the, the organization itself uh, is a local institution, but with a broad international network, collaborating with a lot of researchers, including archaeologists and conservators from all over the world, not only from this region. Me and Vasil are Bulgarian archaeologists, and uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's our location at the moment. We are in Bulgaria. Vasco? What else can I say? <laughs> we are in Bulgaria. This is uh, <laughs> southeastern uh, Europe, <laughs> and uh, we currently we are in different cities. Uh, Ivan is mm-hmm. on the Danube River, uh, but uh, I'm on the Black Sea coast in Varna. This mm. is one of the major Bulgarian cities, and I'm here because I'm, I'm an archaeologist in the local museum, and my work is here. Uh, so yeah, this is about our location. As for the Balkan Heritage Foundation, we work not only in Bulgaria. Uh, this is a Bulgarian foundation, by the way. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, we have also uh, projects in other countries uh, in the Balkans, including North Macedonia and Greece and uh, Montenegro. Uh, but uh, most of our projects are in our country in uh, Bulgaria. So do you guys work for this foundation? Is this attached to a, a university um, or school somehow? How does that work? The organization is uh, an independent uh, institution and it uh, it's okay. independent, but uh, it's a platform uh, for uh, collaboration 
uh, in the field of the cultural heritage study and preservation. So it collaborates with a lot of mm-hmm. museums, research institutions, universities here in Bulgaria and across the ocean. And uh, But it's an independent organization. I'm the founder of the Balkan Heritage Foundation. It was established 12 years ago in, in Bulgaria. And Vasil has been uh, mm-hmm. since the very beginning with us. Uh, he's part of the core team of the organization, but he's uh, currently hired by the Varna Regional History Museum. Mm-hmm. So regarding the uh, Balkan Heritage Foundation, I want to stay on that just for a minute. What is the goal of the Balkan Heritage Foundation? Are you guys charged with recording and preserving heritage that's out there right now? Is there a lot of stuff that that just hasn't been discovered yet that you're trying to record? Or is it more of an educational mission or a mixture of both? Uh, the foundation has uh, two major programs. And one of them is uh, the educational program known as the Balkan Heritage Field School. It's a program for mm-hmm. education and training in the field of archaeology and conservation. And this program provides a lot of archaeological and conservation field schools for people from over the world and provides access to the local heritage to all these people and also trains them in uh, in these fields and also enables them, even students, to obtain academic credits through our partner academic network. And uh, the other important program of the Balkan Heritage is uh, related to research and preservation of the local cultural heritage. So we are working in this part of Europe. You know, it's on the crossroad of, uh, you know, between Mediterranean and uh, Eastern Europe and between Western Europe and Asia. It's it's very interesting mm-hmm. area with a lot of cultures and civilizations. Practically, it's a mini model of Europe. Almost every yeah. civilization that has yeah. ever existed in Europe left uh, its imprint in the Balkan area. And especially those civilizations that never, <laughs> never got deeper in, in Europe, uh, like Persia, for instance, <laughs> entered the Balkans in the past. And we are from the Balkans. That's the reason why we are involved in the Balkan heritage preservation. And we want to disseminate mm-hmm. the knowledge and we want to disseminate, you know, the also the uh, scientific access to, to enable the scientific access to the local cultural heritage and make pe- more people interested in its research and preservation. And our programs for uh, research supports archaeological, mainly archaeological research uh, and conservation research as well, and conservation activities and policies for heritage management. Vasil, anything to add to that? I can add that... Uh... Uh, the, the work of the Balkan Heritage Foundation uh, is uh, very interesting because uh, we work with a lot of students, and not only students, participants from all over the world. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we invite all these people uh, to the Balkans, to Bulgaria and to the other countries in the Balkans. And uh, it is very interesting to present uh, the local culture to uh, to to these uh, to these people that are so different with so uh, different backgrounds, and this cultural contact, to my opinion, is very interesting. And uh, this is one of the the most valuable things I think in uh, uh, in the work of the foundation. This exchange of culture. Our our platform uh, our platform for collaboration in benefit of the cultural heritage deserved uh, special attention by Europa Nostra, uh, uh, our jury. So they paid attention and actually uh, we, we got the special mention 
for our contribution to uh, education in the field of archaeology and conservation, for sure. But it's based on this kind of collaboration between researchers, conservators, students, local communities, and bringing success uh, to preservation of the cultural heritage when everyone is satisfied. I mean, it's based on a slightly different model than most uh, than the models used by most of the colleagues here in Europe, based on funding from the state or funding from, let's say, European funding funding programs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about a specific expedition you guys are working on, the Fresco Hunt Photo Research Expedition. Why don't you tell us about uh, that and how this got started? It started uh, during a picnic <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Literally, we, we did a picnic in, uh, in, the, I mean, in meadows of Western Bulgaria, beautiful area, but uh, quite abandoned and mm-hmm. depopulated nowadays. And we discovered that um, the abundance of uh, abandoned uh, medieval churches and post-medieval churches was very high. There was a high, high concentration. And these churches were humble, but very often they were painted with really exquisite frescoes. And all of them mm-hmm. were abandoned. So we were considering what we can do and in 2008, together with Vasil and some other colleagues, we started this expedition as a response to the, you know, to the uh, disappearing post-medieval churches in this area. And this area suffered a lot from different factors, economic, political, historical, etc. And uh, there are some explanations and reasons why uh, this area is so depopulated nowadays. But uh, we we knew there is something precious and valuable we want to preserve. If not preserving the actual monuments, at least to create a record about their existence and uh, communicate it with the future researchers. How is the expedition proceeding? Like, what what do you guys, I mean, it seems like a really big job (laughs) to do this. So how are you organizing it? And, And what are the, I guess, what are the... I don't know what are the end what are the end goals here. I mean, you said presentation of research to um, to researchers and probably preservation because these are uh, these might not be standing for much longer for various reasons. How how big of a job is this? What's the big area that this expedition covers? I will start only with the geographical area and give the uh, give the floor of Vasco to describe the the goals of the expedition. But mm-hmm. we are talking about uh, let's see. Um, the Balkans, the central Balkan zone in the very heart of Southeastern Europe is this area mm-hmm. that is currently split between Bulgaria and Serbia. Uh, this is a highly contested border zone uh, that in the past was actually a reason for wars between Bulgaria and Serbia, mm-hmm. especially during the late 19th and early 20th century. And this area is uh, highly depopulated now. It's still border zone and it's border zone of an EU country like Bulgaria and non-EU country like Serbia. And uh, this, this makes, this makes things more difficult nowadays. <laughs> Vasco, maybe you can describe the goals of the expedition. And- uh, yes, of course. Uh, about the mm-hmm. goals of the expedition. Uh, first, uh, I can say that this is uh, a really very important uh, expedition because uh, we are studying, we are exploring uh, churches 
buildings that are in a very poor state. Most of them are abandoned, or uh, in some cases they don't have roofs, uh, so uh, they are exposed to the elements, and uh, the, the wall paintings, especially inside, are in very bad condition. And uh, our expedition actually uh, collects uh, information, uh, documents all these uh, frescoes and the architecture, the remains of the architecture, and we are trying to create a kind of database. And uh, I know that it sounds awful, but uh, in some cases, we believe that our database about uh, those monuments will be the last database for them. Because uh, sometimes when we visit uh, a, a site several years in a row, every uh, next year, we see that uh, the, the site is in a worse state. So this is the main goal, to collect information, to, to create a database. And uh, the second goal, of course, they are connected, is to provoke interest in the local communities in the local institutions, and if it is possible, in the national institutions in Sofia. And this interest, if we, if, we succeed, uh, if we are successful, this interest can lead to some restoration wars or stuff. This is very difficult mm. in Bulgaria, but uh, this is the only hope for, this, uh, for all these sites. Yeah, Vasir is absolutely right, because um, giving an example, how can we do this? Uh, it raises public awareness not only in local level. And the local level is um, sometimes four grandmothers and their goats. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the local level, I mean, <laughs> and, but on national level. <laughs> and this, this area is depopulated for historical reasons because of the wars in the past between mm -hmm. Bulgaria and Serbia and Yugoslavia. And this is number one. Then we had the communist period and these churches fell into the cordon sanitaire of the Eastern Bloc. What is cordon sanitaire? Or this yeah. is the, the actual Iron Curtain. The, this mm. is the border zone between the communist world and the outer world. I mean, the non-communist countries. Yugoslavia was not considered yeah. by the communist countries as a communist country. That's why this, this border was fortified. And there was a a very strongly fortified uh, strip of land, 20 kilometer uh, going inland, with a restricted access, uh, even of Bulgarian citizens who lived there, they had difficulties to access their own villages and homes uh, from inside the country. And you know, this mm. all this was built to prevent the people living in the communist paradise to escape from it. <laughs> That's why it was so efficient. I mean, you, you saw how many people died of the Berlin Wall, and this was the yeah. peak of the iceberg. Even more people died in, uh, in the Bulgarian border zones. People from all over Eastern Europe who came to Bulgaria officially on holiday, but tried to escape to the free world at the time. And uh, this is the second um, uh, major impact, uh, the second major uh, a problem of this area, it was um, for 50 years, it was isolated from the country. And of course, mm -hmm. it has economic impact of, uh, uh, of, the, of these territories. Right now, everything is fine, except there are no people. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the scarce human resources and the scarce economic resources result in, uh, in inability to maintain and preserve uh, the remaining cultural heritage. 
yeah, let's, with that, let's take a break and we will come back and continue talking about this. And then we're going to bring in uh, some aspects of the field schools as well. So we'll be back in just a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 94, and we are speaking with Yvonne and Vasile. I have their last names, but for the respect out of them, I'm not going to pronounce them. They are in the show notes, <laughs> so we're, I'm just not going to butcher them. So check out the show notes for their uh, for their full names and then some other links to like the Balkan Heritage Foundation, for example. So Vasile, you were mentioning these frescoes in the and the churches in the in the area that these frescoes are on and, and some other paintings, architecture, things like that that are within them. Can you talk briefly about the ages of these structures? What what type of range are we talking about here? Are these things, you know, a hundred years old, five hundred years old, or a, a range of ages? Like what what time periods do these date back to? Uh, so the, the churches that we we study are most of them are uh, from the time that we called post Byzantine, uh, which means that okay. uh, they were built after the fall of the Byzantine Empire in the middle of the 15th century, and most of the buildings mm-hmm. uh, can be dated to the late uh, late 16th and 17th century. In this period, uh, this uh, part of the Balkans was uh, under the Ottoman domination. Uh, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of Christian people that uh, lived in these uh, territories, the former uh, Christian Balkan countries. And uh, they built churches in this area. And uh, no matter that, the churches were very humble from outside. I mean, as architecture, because uh, they were constructed, uh, they were built uh, in the Ottoman Empire, an empire dominated by Islam. Uh, mm-hmm. Inside, the interior of the churches remained extremely lavishly decorated. So they were like a jewels, but from inside. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a very strange phenomenon. If you approach such a church from outside, you can see just a humble structure with humble masonry, 
nothing special, probably a cross on the roof, that, that will be all. But when you enter the church, you will be surrounded by a, a, a huge gallery of frescoes, of images from everywhere. And uh, this uh, I, decorative program or iconographic program is actually the main uh, thing that we study in the churches. Uh, it is mm -hmm. a very, a very interesting uh, topic, and uh, I have to say that iconography in our team, uh, this is my superpower. Uh, so <laughs> I deal mainly with iconography, with the meaning of the frescoes, uh, and uh, when we go to a certain church uh, with our students, uh, one of our first uh, tasks is uh, to analyze the remains of the, of the iconographic program and to decode it. And uh, this is really very interesting because usually the churches are in, not in a good state and only parts of the decoration yeah. are still there. So we have to take these pieces and to decode them. And uh, mm. it's, it is like, a, how to say, like a scientific uh, adventure. Uh, we, we have to put together all pieces. We have to find uh, the, whole, the, the whole compositions to analyze, to interpret. And... Uh, I think it's uh, a little bit like uh, the Da Vinci Code, you know, uh, because uh, <laughs> it's very, yeah, it's very, uh, it's fascinating. You're going to the most forgotten place in the mountain, in an abandoned yeah. monastery, for example. You enter a church that uh, uh, barely can stand on its foundations, and there <laughs> you can find a iconographic program with deep theological ideas. Uh, presented in the images with uh, influences from Constantinople, from Syria, from some other exotic places, and all this incorporated in the church in that forgotten place. To me personally, this hmm. is fascinating. And this is uh, a very important part of our work to, to go to these places, to interpret, to understand the situation, and then to start the documentation. Uh, which is uh, mm -hmm. the other the other step of our work to document everything. Yeah, I tell you, I wasn't going to mention uh, the Da Vinci Code, but I'm glad you brought it up because that's exactly what <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> let's let's give a broader context to um, uh, to the audience. Uh, so we're talking definitely uh, for the centuries, mostly for monuments dating back to 16th, 17th centuries. But there are monuments that are slight, not slightly, but significantly older. I mean, dating back to uh, 14th, 15th centuries. And this is the time of um, the Second Bulgarian Empire and the conquest of the Second Bulgarian Empire and the Byzantine Empire by the Ottomans. And the Ottomans, actually, this is a very good example. So one can think that under the Ottomans, Christianity was banned. And probably many people still think that under the Islamic empire, like the Ottoman empire, Christianity was banned or constantly prosecuted. That's not the true picture. Uh, there is a significant uh, signs of tolerance and policies uh, that tolerated uh, uh, the worship, Christian worship. And uh, more or less, the Christian communities were organized in a separate uh, so-called people or millet uh, that were self-governed and they had their own rules and they were respected mm -hmm. by the Sultans. So this is important to know. But within the Ottoman Empire, there was a great ability to move. And Christians from Syria and even Egypt and uh, all over the Balkans were free to travel 
from one side of the empire to another. So it was a precondition for a great cultural exchange. Of course, most mm. of the painters and artisans who created these churches were not from so far away. Uh, they were from Southeastern Europe, but their nationality didn't matter. It, their religious belonging did matter. They were Christians. On, this was their first identity. No matter if they were Bulgarians, or Albanians, Serbs, Greeks, or Vlachs, all of them uh, belonged to the Christian uh, Orthodox Church and created this art devoted to God. Sometimes it mm -hmm. was difficult. Vasil said something very interesting. This art is unique because it can trace, it can help us trace uh, uh, artisan trade, uh, trade routes. But uh, sometimes mm -hmm. it was not, I mean, fully comprehended by the local shepherds because it was built in places to educate the local shepherd or village communities. People who, although Christians, the local Bulgarian Christians were actually they considered themselves Christians, but without the strong presence of the Orthodox Church that was, you know, under the Ottomans, it was very weak. Uh, they lost the real connection with the uh, ecclesiastical, uh, ecclesiastical life, and sometimes even the priests were uh, shepherds like the rest of the community. So these people, mm -hmm. I doubt they deeply understood this iconographic code all the time. But... It helps us get back to the time of 16th century and learn about these uh, cultural exchanges across the Eastern Mediterranean and look at the perspective of the locals, no matter if they were shepherds or highly educated monks or priests. So that makes me think uh, with this with this cultural transmission of of ideas and and art and the and the artists you know traveling around, and with these all being I guess Christian churches you know based in that and and the idea that they're teaching the locals. Vasil, I was wondering when you're trying to interpret what you see on some of these more degraded ones um, in, in these more country churches that haven't stood the test of time very well, are there churches from same time periods in towns and cities that are still existing that are that are better preserved that help you with that interpretation or are they all different are they telling different stories i would imagine they would tell a lot of the same stories but maybe in different ways if their goal is to educate people about christianity well there are churches in uh, in the big cities uh, some of them are preserved with uh, with some wall paintings some of them not uh, because in the cities the situation was different and there they had other problems uh, in the cities mm. uh, first uh, the the ottoman presence were bigger stronger and uh, that's why it was more difficult to build uh, churches there uh, but uh, something else, after the liberation of Bulgaria that took place later in the 19th century, uh, Bulgarian authorities uh, wanted to rebuild the cities to make them look more modern, more Western European-like, European etc. And in that period, late 19th and early 20th century, a lot of uh, important medieval and post-Byzantine monuments were destroyed because of this. Mm. And they were replaced yeah. by bigger but modern churches. So uh, the example with the big cities is not very good when we talk about this kind of uh, post-Byzantine art. Uh, but mm. there is something else. Uh, the, the iconographic program of the churches, especially that period, was uh, very conservative. And uh, there are uh, some very strict rules how to decorate the interior of the church. Uh, 
So if you if you study Byzantine iconography, you would know these guidelines, let's say, or major rules. But uh, of course, uh, in every church, you can expect to find some unique combinations uh, because uh, the exact program would be decided by the commissioners, by the, the people, the community that would commission the, the decoration of the church. Those guys could be the, the rich man in the local village or town or uh, the brotherhood of a certain monastery. And uh, in every case, in every church, you can expect something unique. Also, mm. it is important that um, the, the decoration was made by different teams of icon painters. And those painters were traveling from place to place. Some were coming from major cities of icon painting, like uh, uh, Constantinople, like Thessaloniki, or uh, Mount Athos in present-day Greece. And uh, those people were bringing with them uh, their iconographic traditions. So you can see that mm. uh, on one hand you have uh, conservative art and you can use the basic guidelines. But on the other hand, you have to be very careful because in every small church you can find something very special, uh, some new idea, uh, some um, exotic influence or something like this. So it, it is uh, never a boring task to, to decode an iconographic program, I can say. <laughs> That sounds great. Uh, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. If I may add, actually, another problem with the big cities. Uh, there is one problem uh, dating back to the Ottoman times. I mean, uh, we're talking about the period of apogee of the Ottoman power. So, of course, the uh, Islamic culture considered, I mean, the, the members of the Islamic community and culture considered themselves as superb. Um, compared to the Christianity. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to see around churches. And the churches should be hidden, should be... And most of the Christian churches uh, in the cities conquered by the Ottomans were converted uh, at certain period of time. I mean, late, by the late 16th century, most of the most significant churches, uh, Christian churches existing in the Christian cities conquered by the Ottomans were converted into mosques like Hagia Sophia in Istanbul or major wow. churches of Thessaloniki. And this is the moment when many big monuments were converted to mosques. Number two, even new churches that were built during this time period, because there were churches built in the big cities, including Istanbul, uh, a major autumn, and this is the capital. Uh, they were hidden. They were dug in the ground. They were hidden from the sight of the, you know, the Muslims. And this is uh, one of the reasons uh, these churches were so humble and their architecture was not to tease the Muslims. And during the mm -hmm. Fragment rebellions, although the, there were long periods of tolerance, there were periods of violence. And, uh, you know, raging uh, Muslims uh, often entered these temples and humiliated them or destroyed them, even burned them. This happened many times mm. in the period of, uh, let's say, five centuries of the Ottoman domination in southeastern Europe. And in Bulgaria, we have another peculiarity. This is the raging communist who didn't like any religion. So on top of this, in the big cities, whatever monuments remained by the mid 20th century, the communist authorities didn't, I mean, at least by mm. the 1960s, 
in the early uh, in the late 1940s and early 50s um you know man not many but many monuments were destroyed because they belonged to either christianity or islam or whatever but uh, the appreciation started returning the appreciation of the old monuments started returning by the 1960s and many monuments were actually nicely preserved and conserved by the authorities at the time and bulgaria was full, fully communist country uh, but mm-hmm. these are two more reasons about the the status of preservation of these monuments and why they don't exist so much in the big cities. Uh, we have so many reasons uh, uh, why <laughs> in the big cities we don't have well-preserved uh, old churches. And that's why we are focused uh, in the rural area, outside in the mountains, in the field, where in the small uh, villages uh, there are still preserved churches from 16th and 17th centuries. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, There are really many, and uh, every year we actually work in several churches because there are too many to, to work in all of them, and we are creating the, this uh, database. Uh, the information uh, can be, how to say, extrapolated uh, to the big cities too, but the, the better preserved monuments are actually in the countryside. Uh, one, one last thing maybe that might be interesting to to the uh, to the audience is about um, the again iconography uh, representing actually the uh, intellectual or theological perceptions of its time but one more thing for southeastern europe but that many thing many, many people don't know mm-hmm. uh, imagine 14th century europe there were still a lot of pagan practices and pagan rituals uh, all over Europe, preserved among the Europeans at the time. Uh, Bulgarian Orthodox Church at the time dealt with um, the way they, they, they could, but being destroyed by the Ottomans removed one obstacle before the pagan traditions being preserved. You know what happened in 16th and 17th century? The Catholic Church worked hard to cleanse, actually, the, you know, everyday life of Europeans, especially the Catholic Europeans, from uh, the connections with the, their pagan past. There were so many folk mm-hmm. traditions and rituals that were actually wiped out from their uh, everyday life because the Catholic Church was mighty, almighty. In the yeah. East, Southeastern Europe, the Orthodox Church was very weak. So nobody cared about what the local villagers do. That's why the Balkans are a, a huge cultural reservoir of pre-Christian traditions even nowadays uh, that were preserved. And uh, the iconographic programs tell us also about these practices. Many pagan traditions are now, um, you know, veiled Christian traditions and considered as UNESCO World Heritage as well. Hmm. Okay, well, I think that is a good spot to take our final break, and we will come back on the other side and wrap up this discussion of frescoes and churches and Balkan heritage with Ivan and Vasil. Back in just a couple minutes. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. 
Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 94, and this is the final segment on Balkan heritage. And I want to ask you guys, we, we've talked a lot about these uh, these churches and these frescoes and, and some of the architecture and things in, in general terms. Have there been any churches, uh, one or two maybe, that have caught your interest the most, like something that is a an excellent preservation or Vasile, something that was really uh, a puzzling mystery that you solved or, or something like that? Is that? Do any of these really just stick out for you guys? Uh, as a medieval and post-medieval archaeologist, uh, for me, a particular interest is the architecture of all these monuments. And um, as an archaeologist, I'm happy when we discover that some of the churches we visit, because we visit also um, monuments that are considered to be built in 19th century. Uh, and and it particularly makes me happy when we discover traces of uh, or evidence that the church was significantly older because in 19th century this is the period of the revival of the bulgarian nation this is the period of the revival of the bulgarian nationalism before the liberation of bulgarians and a lot of churches were this uh, were renovated as a symbol of the national pride and um, you know um, just to signify this is our territory, this is our land, in contrast with the uh, dominating Islam. And there are many churches that are believed to be built in 19th century. They were bigger and beautiful. But there are still some village churches that when we visit them, we find under the plaster, uh, the fallen plaster walls, uh, the wall plasters. We find uh, frescoes that show us clearly that the frescoes date back to the post-medieval period. 15th, 16th, 17th mm. centuries, or some architectural details when the uh, exterior plaster fell, um, we can see clear evidence about reconstructions that tell us the church was built a couple of centuries earlier than it is believed. So this makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Vasco? Uh, well, actually... I want to say something a little bit different, uh, not so much about the intellectual challenge, but uh, about the adventure of exploring these churches. And I want mm -hmm. to make a comparison with the other project of uh, the Balkan Heritage Foundation, uh, because we have a lot of projects in our program, but uh, the rest of the projects are uh, archaeological excavations or some kind of restoration projects. In both cases, uh, we uh, everything is very, very clear and well organized. We have a partnership with the local archaeological uh, institutions. We work on a specific sites. Uh, we work with uh, specific teams uh, in laboratories or uh, workshops, etc. So everything is some somehow in in complete order. But uh, fresco hunting expedition is uh, totally different, and it makes it uh, it's a it is a unique uh, project in our program uh, because it is really an adventure. Uh, we uh, every year we have a list of churches that we want to to visit and to to document to explore. Uh, but uh, in many cases uh, we we haven't been there before. So first we have to get there. And in many cases, these are very remote places in some abandoned villages, let's say, or ruined monasteries. And uh, sometimes we have to 
to walk through a kind of uh, jungle to to cut plants uh, <laughs> once it was with machete by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to, to get to the to get to the churches uh, some sometimes the churches are halfly ruined sometimes we have to um, to crawl in the church and uh, I can uh, I can give you two examples they are favorite in my memories uh the first example it was uh, an abandoned monastery not far from sofia in the mountain and this was uh, one of the first years of the project so our team was not very experienced and not very well equipped but we were very very motivated and uh, we decided to split in smaller groups and to investigate more churches so i was with uh, with two or three students so we we had to make uh, a hiking trip up from a village to that monastery so we got lost several times at the end we found the place <laughs> and uh, it was an amazing place uh, malo malovo is the name uh wonderful nature everything was green it was in may unfortunately uh, these uh, bushes and trees the wonderful one they were all around the church and so there was no light penetrating through the windows and it was dark inside and because we were not well equipped we had only one camping gas lamp that was it <laughs> and and because the trip yeah. was very long and we had a task so we spent the whole day with this gas lamp making our mm. first notes and first sketches of the monument of that of that site and it was like uh, I can compare it to the expeditions of the 19th centuries to the new world. It was very exciting. And uh, <laughs> next year, we, we came back with better you know, equipment. We, we finished everything. But our first uh, contact with the, with the church was, uh, was fascinating. And it was mm-hmm. a real adventure. And the second, uh, the second case was uh, two years ago, I think in another village very close to the Serbian border. Uh, it was a, a strange church. It was an old one from 17th century, I think. And uh, some local businessmen in that village wanted to make a renovation, but because they didn't have a permission from authorities, they started uh, to build some concrete constructions from inside. Jeez. From inside, yes. Uh, this project was not successful, so they abandoned everything. To get inside, we had to, to crawl in through the window. So they let me first inside. And uh, in the interior was in a, in a awful condition. Anyway, we were able to save uh, pieces of wood carving from the iconostasis. This is the, the barrier between, uh, between the altar and the rest of the church in the Orthodox churches. So uh, this uh, altar screen used to be decorated with uh, uh, with wood carvings, but all these mm. were broken and in pieces on the ground. So we collected some pieces, then uh, uh, we, we managed to make a good an- uh, investigation, and we found that some of the pieces of wood carving actually were v- uh, very old. Uh, hmm. There were some uh, some mythical creatures, some floral ornaments, and even even a crucifixion. 
and oh. we called uh, our colleagues uh, restorers and ethnographers from Sofia. They came to help us with this, and it was another interesting uh, adventure, I can say, with uh, some risks and danger, uh, because to get into the church, it was pretty risky, but uh, mm -hmm. very interesting. So... As you can uh, as you can see, our project is not a, just an ordinary scientific uh, project. It was a real adventure, <laughs> and yeah, this is this is my favorite project <laughs> of all. <laughs> well, speaking of that's a that's a good segue into the last thing I want to talk about on this podcast, and and that is the field school and the students that you guys bring out there. So, this must be because a field school for most students is usually one of their first experiences with actual field archaeology and to come onto this type of project as your first experience with field archaeology must be fascinating. What What is it like for students on these projects? How much time do you get to spend out there and what kind of what kind of things do they do on the field school? Students, uh, students normally love this project and it's attended by people uh, between 18 and 80. Hmm. And uh, all of them love it because it combines uh, rich theory, uh, unexpected cultural heritage, and adventures. Uh, yeah. And um, so what students learn, they, they come and have their practice for two weeks. Uh, normally, the project takes two weeks in May. And uh, students learn about uh, more or less the context of this art, uh, artifacts and monuments about the, um, the Byzantine architecture, Byzantine iconography, and orthodox, uh, orthodox ecclesiastical art. But on top of this, they learn more about the local specifics, and this is the theoretical part, and also about the preservation and conservation of these kind of artifacts. Hmm. But what they get is practical skills for architectural documentation, practical skills for uh, documentation of small-scale monuments, and practical skills for um, also photographic documentation of small-scale monuments and organizing a photographic project, organizing an architectural recording project, and uh, using a dumpy level, uh, using scale drawing, etc., etc. And all these skills, they're very successful in gaining them in such a short, limit, short and limited time. Um, hmm. All of them actually contribute to the actual research project by their own works and documentation projects they get. And by the end of the project, we we receive uh, very good contributions from all the students uh, that are actually used by us as researchers for further publications of these monuments. And all this work is just the open door towards further preservation and research efforts. Normally, these projects are followed by archaeological um, investigations or followed by mm -hmm. conservators who come and actually start a conservation project or um, by the local municipalities who take it over and uh, design the complete preservation plan and preservation project. Of course, this is half of the truth. Half, the other half of the truth is that these monuments just next time we visit them are half ruined or just destroyed. Okay. I, I want to say thanks, guys, for coming on the show here. This has been a fascinating discussion. Is there anything else that either of you want our audience to know about Balkan Heritage or the Fresco Project or anything else that we haven't already covered? 
yeah, uh, we're more than happy to welcome everyone who is ready to support the Balkan heritage uh, in general through their work, volunteer work, or through their contribution and participating mm-hmm. in either the Balkan heritage field schools or any of the volunteer research projects we are uh, we are offering. We are so happy to have uh, more than 2,000 students from all over the world who participated in our field school in the past mm-hmm. and uh, contributed significantly to this uh, to our mission to preserve this heritage and make it popular and enable access to the Balkan heritage to the rest of the world. That's the most important part of our mission. So thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for the access you provide, of, I mean, to communicate our work here in, in Bulgaria mm-hmm. and the Balkans with the rest of the world. No problem. Vasil, anything else to add? Well, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I think uh, we... <laughs> I think we said that the most important things about uh, about this project of ours, and I would like to welcome everybody who is interest in, interested in uh, in old history, in Balkan history, in Byzantine art and culture uh, to come and to come and uh, join us. This is really an interesting project. There is a lot of intellectual challenge, as I said. Uh, there are mysteries. There is uh, also photography. Uh, beautiful places, beautiful nature. So if, if you like all these things, welcome to Bulgaria <laughs> and to Balkan Heritage Foundation. Okay. Well, gentlemen, Ivan and Vasil, again, thank you for coming on to the Archaeology Show. And uh, I'm... I'm I tell you what, you got me really excited. And maybe next year, if the world is back to normal, um, I'd like to, man, I'd really like to just get out there, do some recording with you guys in the field and and uh, and see some of this awesome heritage you guys are talking about. So again, thank you for coming on the Archaeology Show. And we will be back with another great show and some, also some, you call this archaeology recordings. You guys might have noticed we're still doing those. So um, my co-host for that show, Richie and I, we do these live recordings on Facebook Live try to do it every week so if you want to join us live on those go to arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and you can see the links to those but you can also go to facebook.com forward slash arcpodnet a-r-c-h-p-o-d-n-e-t to watch us live there so again thank you to Ivan and Vasil and we will see you next week Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. You can also find us on the Lyceum app, a podcast app just for educational podcasts. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.